Hi, everybody. I'm Francesca Maxime, and thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Rerooted podcast on Rondas's Be Here Now Network, where we really invite you to sort of get back in touch with whatever your earthiness, your goodness, your connection, all those little roots that are intertwined underneath the, the earth. Um, obviously, the analogy is to one another and to all things. Um, and that's kind of what we're talking about. We're never not living relationally. We're never not in relationship to something. The question is, are we in balance? And the guest that I'm having on today, whom I've interviewed before, and she's written best-selling books and has another one now uh, called Burnout, uh, Emily Nagoski. She is the New York Times best-selling author of Come As You Are, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life. We're talking about women specifically and how structural systems of oppression and patriarchy really keep people out of balance to what I once heard on a radio show here in Boston, which is where I am at my mom's house, say many years ago when there was a call-in guy and he said, well, I wouldn't be such a taker if there weren't so many givers. So, oh, Emily, welcome. Uh, I should also say she's a you know PhD. She's at Smith. She's researching and traveling and TED Talks and all that stuff. And uh, her website, I'll put on the links and stuff like that. So welcome and thank you so much for joining me again. Thank you so much. Um, so let's start with that. You had a reaction to what I just said. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So like this is the place to start, right? Um, in burnout, my sister and I use this language of something we call human giver syndrome. And we take that language from uh, the moral philosopher Kate Mann. She wrote a book called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, which is a very dark but very short book that I cannot recommend enough. It is spectacular. If you have the mental wherewithal to read it, read it. Um, but in it, she posits a world where there's really two types of humans. There are human beings who have a moral obligation to be their full humanity to be as acquisitive, acquisitive and competitive and entitled as they need to be in order to take what it takes to be their full humanity. And then there are the human givers who have a moral obligation to give their full humanity to others so that they can manifest their full humanity. Um, we give, uh, their, a giver gives their time, their attention, their affection, their patience, their love, their bodies, their hopes and dreams, their very lives sacrificed willingly on the altar of other people's comfort and convenience. So guess which one women are? <laughs> yeah, I think it's, the givers. <laughs> yeah, it's obviously not as simple and black and white as men are the human beings and women are the human givers. My sister and I are both married to uh, givers who are cisgender men. Uh, and the structure of our relationship is built around the fact that we are both givers. My husband and I monitor each other's energy to make sure, because he will just like give and give and give and give in support of me and not monitor his own limits. And so part of my job loving him is to notice his limits with him and be like, maybe don't give me this. Yeah. Uh, so it's a really different kind of relationship than the standard gendered uh, narrative. And he's a dude. So yeah. it is like, like, don't take it as simple and black and white as like there's men are beings and women are givers, obviously. Um, and there are plenty of women who are hu beings who are entitled and um, take advantage of and manipulate women as givers, other women, uh, 
and that's a whole thing we can talk about. But that's the starting point for me. Um, in burnout, we say that a human, if you have human giver syndrome, you believe it is a woman's moral obligation to be pretty, happy, calm, generous, and attentive to the needs of others. And if a woman somehow fails to be any of those things in any given moment, she, because she has a moral obligation to be these things, she can be punished if she falls short. And uh, we're so strongly indoctrinated in this that if there's no one around to punish us when we fall short, we'll just go ahead and beat the shit out of ourselves. Wow. That's, that's what another person I respect would call the colonized mind. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's really uh, so many layers to this and how insidious it is and how I know um, you as well as um, me are a mindfulness practitioner as well as a lot of our um, listeners are in the sense that um, really sort of decluttering the mind, de mm -hmm. the whole point of sort of looking at this path of mindfulness is sort of taking away what is the conditioned response in favor of what's the more authentic, true, respectful, right. dignified, noble, um, positive, warm regard, relational response um, overall. And the cats are in fact making a piano. It's so beautiful to watch cat on a piano. <laughs> okay, so um, again, um, back, to, back to this. The idea of having givers and takers, right? However we want to be. In order for the um, beings in this, like the, the, to live their full humanity, how does the giver syndrome, the human giver syndrome, then affect the organisms, whatever sexual orientation, gender representation, whatever they are, whoever we are, how does that affect our actual neurophysiology, the way that we can be in oh, the world? Yeah our stress, and then perhaps affect our behavior or yes. over short and long term. Yeah. So let's make it clear that it is not the giving that is bad for us. Giving is the natural state. And if we had to create a world where everybody could be well, it would not be a world where everyone is a human being in Kate Mann's language. It would not be a place where everyone is entitled, acquisitive, and competitive uh, but actually, so if you do this thought experiment of like, imagine a world where everyone is entitled, acquisitive and competitive, what would that world be like? It would not be, it would, I asked this question and there was a philosophy major in the room who said, uh, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish and short. Cause he'd been reading Hobbes lately. Nice. Uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, like that's not the world we're looking for. We want a world where everyone is a human giver, where they feel responsible for contributing what they can to the human endeavor, to our species, to the globe. Uh, and uh, what we need is not for everyone to be a human being, for everyone to be a giver, because if everyone is a giver, like if you have like given your all out in the world for the day and you come home to a house full of fellow givers, people aren't gonna be like, so when will dinner be on the table? People are gonna be like, you're clearly really tired, go take a nap. We will make dinner for you, have a shower, come down, we will eat, and we will all sit around and talk about our feelings. Yay. Right? Like that's like the nourishing world where everyone feels obliged to care for the people that they can. And when we all have that obligation, we don't let people get drained and exhausted and worn out to like a tiny little nub. Whereas uh, in human giver syndrome, which is a dynamic created by the culture, Givers get worn out because they're surrounded by people who the more you give them, 
the more they feel entitled to take from you. And this has, so in this dynamic of human giver syndrome, a human giver is not allowed to have any needs of any kind. Uh, one really basic need is like rest. And I know we have all these self-care memes and self-care Sunday and all the things around self-care and you can't pour from an empty cup and you don't have to set yourself on fire to keep other people warm and that's great. But in human giver syndrome, if you're a human giver and you have an empty cup that you can't pour from, people don't say, Emily, your cup is empty. Why don't you go fill it and do what you need to do? They say, Emily, I see you've got that cup. Why are you hoarding that empty cup when there's someone over there with water who could really use your cup? That's human giver syndrome. But I'm not even allowed to have my cup. Yeah. How dare I? Every last thing. Yeah. And when you can't rest, the other big need is you can't have uh, emotional expression that makes other people uncomfortable. So, you know, fear, frustration, rage, we've all got it. Uh, like in human giver syndrome, you are not allowed to impose these uncomfortable feelings on the people around you because their comfort, of course, matters more than yours does. And so you hold those feelings somewhere inside your body. For me, it's like right here in my neck. And for my sister, it's very much her digestive system. And uh, the longer you hold on to this stuff and you smile, and are nice to people and are happy and calm because that is your responsibility to make sure everybody else feels all right and you're not gonna impose your discomfort on them because that's not okay. And so you just like let it dissolve your organs. This is a physiological response that we're interrupting. Uh, we call it the stress response cycle in the book because like all of our biological processes, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Like digestion, right? There's a beginning, there's a middle, and an end. And if you don't get to the end, bad things happen. Well, I call it the emotional constipation. Yeah, yeah. And in the same way that bad stuff happens if you don't get all the way through the digestive cycle, bad stuff happens if your body doesn't get all the way through the stress response cycle or an emotional cycle. Emotions are tunnels. You have to get all the way through the darkness to get to the light at the end. Um, and it's a very real physiological event when you like hold on to these emotions like you get angry or frustrated or afraid and you're like no i'm not gonna feel that i'm stronger than that i don't need to have that feeling i'm a big girl i don't know it doesn't make me upset everything is fine uh what that does is you've escalated the stress response which has all these very straightforward physiological consequences to your cardiovascular system increasing your blood pressure let's take just the blood pressure piece of it right um so your blood vessels are designed to have a sort of like gentle kind of stream of your blood flow but when your heart rate accelerates and your adrenaline level goes up it's not a gently flowing stream it's a fire hose which causes damage to your blood vessels which is fine if it's temporary and your blood pressure goes back down and your blood vessels can repair themselves. But if it stays elevated and you keep reinforcing the damage, that's where plaques form. And that's how stress leads to cardiovascular disease in this very straightforward structural way. But if we allow our bodies to complete the stress response cycle and return to a place of calm, then our body has what it needs to repair the damage done. It's not the stress itself that's the problem, it's the getting stuck. 
That's the problem. It's dismissing our own emotional needs or not having the opportunity, sometimes the skill, but more often the opportunity to let our bodies return to a place of calm and safety. Yeah, I love that because it's both um, macro and micro. It's both the global, right? So, so if the structural piece, which you talked about at the beginning, were different, if everybody were givers, then we wouldn't be in this situation and have to manage our own stress response cycles. However, given that the structure, you know, we're every policy around patriarchy or suppression or oppression or better than as opposed yes. to or whatever, that's not going to change overnight. Although we all are working toward that. Right. Um, that um, we end up having to deal with it on our own. But how this is different, you're saying with everybody's physiology does this, this is how bodies work. This is how stress affects the physiology of the body, the neurophysiology of the body. And unless you allow it to move through and get unstuck, you will essentially get sick. Right, yes, yeah. in the long term, like literally end up in the hospital. The origin story for the book is that my sister was hospitalized twice for stress-induced pain and inflammation. Um, and when we were writing, I really thought her story was rare. I was wrong. I have now lost count of the number of women we've met who are like, I was hospitalized too, and they couldn't find a diagnosis, or they told me it was just stress, and they told me to go home and relax, or have a glass of wine. Um, which th that's a whole other piece of the structural inequality is when you do get disease and you go to a medical provider and they don't take your pain and suffering seriously for all kinds of reasons, because you're a person of color, because you're a woman, because you're a person of size, all kinds of ways that you can be dismissed because you don't speak English as a first language, all kinds of reasons, um, because you don't have the same vocabulary as your physician. Anyway, um, but what's I think really powerful about recognizing the physiological impact of structural inequality and socially based stressors is that if we can separate our stress, this thing that happens in our body, from our stressors, some of which are in our body and a lot of which are outside our bodies and like totally separate from us, we can separate the process of dealing with our stress from the process of dealing with our stressors, which means we don't have to wait until our problems have been solved, until, those, until the patriarchy is dismantled, until white supremacy is dismantled, before we start to feel better. Because we can deal with our stress right here in our bodies right now, yeah. so that we are strong enough and well enough to go out and fight again against the white supremacist, cis heteropatriarchy. Right, because we have to really, really be able to, to nourish and to recharge. And so one of the anecdotes you talked about in the book is your sister's friend who was a teacher who was like so burnt out yeah. that she has the, you know, the, the day drinking at two, three after class or whatever, which I know plenty of people do. And I yeah. did too, where it was just like enough already. And Oh yeah, yeah I've been there. Yeah. And well, I, and you know, for me personally, like I don't drink anymore. It's been something that I've been able to, just just change, which is great. So I'm not adding that piece to it, but that's my own journey and piece of it. My point is whether it's drinking, whether it's eating, whether it's shopping, whether it's whatever you're doing, that's like trying to manage and cope your stress, yeah. but it's not actually helping to discharge it. Yeah. Instead of doing those coping things, what can we do instead? Yeah. So the things you just talked about, uh, drugs and alcohol, food, shopping. These are all strategies for numbing. And sometimes that's what's available and what you have to do. Sometimes the intensity is just too much and you need to like stop and just tune out. Yeah, no shame in that game. Yeah, no. Been there. I understand it. Um, I had a woman actually ask me when I was talking about this whole, like, you have to feel your feelings and go through the tunnel, blah, 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 who was like, so suppose just hypothetically, 
um, you have uh, two children who are about to go off to college and you're caring for your dying parents, I mean, just hypothetically. Is it bad to sometimes just like lock yourself in your room with a glass of wine and Pride and Prejudice? No, sometimes you need to do what you need to do to like just numb the pain temporarily. Painkillers are like, yeah, we're not shaming that. And that's not the same thing as actually healing or doing like sort of physical therapy for your soul, uh, which is the stuff that actually completes the stress response cycle in just, instead of just like numbing the pain of it. Uh, so the things that complete the stress response cycle, the stress that happens in your body, are the things that tell your body you have successfully escaped this stressor, like the lion that is chasing you, you have escaped. Um, and your body doesn't understand what filing your taxes means. It doesn't understand what like putting a smile on your face and being a grown up and having that difficult conversation with your coworker in a nice, respectful, professional way. In fact, that sort of makes stuff worse because you're like holding on to your all emotions, being like, mm-hmm, I understand how you feel. Here's what I'm looking for for you. Mm-hmm. And your body's like, punch him in the face. Right, right. Sorry about that noise. Uh, but well, no, you're managing behavior, which yes. can be appropriate, but you still need to take care of yourself after. Right. Just because you've done that in the grown up good way, like, and you can postpone for an amazingly long time. We are all probably walking around with some decades of incomplete stress response cycles in our bodies, right? Um, So your body will happily hold that for you until you can get around to completing the cycle. Don't worry about that part of it. The question is making sure you create an opportunity to complete that stress response cycle. Physical activity is the first single most efficient strategy for doing this. If you're being chased by a lion, what do you do? You run. So when you're stressed out from traffic or just sort of like the administrivia of living in a 21st century modern life, what do you do? You run or any movement of your body. It can be just a walk around the block. It can be jumping jacks by your desk. It can be just like standing up and letting your body shake and shudder and tremble until you relax your whole body like that. Any kind of connecting and moving inside of your body is what's going to tell your body you have successfully escaped from this stressor and returned your body to a place of safety and home. Another one is affection, which takes all different kinds of forms. One of my favorite tips in the whole book is the 20 second hug. Um, 20 seconds, potentially an awkward long time to hug somebody unless you really like them and trust them, which is the point. Uh, that over 20 seconds, you just put your arms around this person who you care about and they put their arms around you and you hold each other close until you're, you feel your chemistry shift and go, oh, right, there's this person in my life who I love and trust enough to stand this close with them and share this space. This is my emotional home and I am in a safe place now. Um, Susanna Isenza calls it hugging until relaxed which yeah. I, because it's not about the 20 seconds. It's about the shift in your body chemistry, holding until your body goes, I'm home now, I'm okay. And we do know that when it does happen and we've yeah. got plenty of these tugs that are just like this that we know it's not happening, right? Yeah, right. Hug where your butt's out and you're not really touching the person. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a totally different kind of. This is the molding, sinking in kind of almost like young baby attachment with good mommy, caregiver yes. person. Exactly thing. what it is, yeah. 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 Um, eye contact can do a similar thing. John Gottman recommends the six second kiss which again, potentially awkwardly long time to kiss somebody unless you really, and that's not six one second kisses. That is one six second kiss. 
which, and again, it's about like teaching your body, look, you're in the safe place with this other person with whom you are at home, who represents your emotional home and your safety. Um, if people are, you can get this, you don't have to be connected with human beings. You can do it with animals in your life. There are times when it's much easier for me to get to that place walking my dog than with any humans on earth. People can do it in their spiritual connection. People often experience their connection with the divine as a loving presence that will hold them and make them feel safe. Um, and you can also do it in superficial kind of social connections. So like a chat with your barista complimenting her earrings or like the checkout lady at the grocery store just like having positive superficial social interactions is one of the first cues for your brain that the world is safe and makes some kind of sense that yeah. you people expect that they're going to be happier like if they're on a train if the person sitting next to them and they don't talk at all and they're just silent and they read their books it turns out even people who believe that feel better if they have like just a friendly little chat with their seatmate, then if they don't, even people who thought they would both feel like crap if they talked, when they do talk, they, they're like, yeah, it was actually pretty nice. Yeah, yeah, and I love that because it's reminding me of all the good stuff that um, Dr. Stephen Forges talks about with, um, you know, the social engagement system, yes. how eye contact, prosody, exactly. the tone of voice, all these pieces are around regulation and that that really is what we're doing because we're engaged in this sympathetic response where we're up here all the time, whoop, 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 can't, you know, like always, you know, Dan Heller calls it wearing our shoulders as earrings. Yeah. And, um, or we're like checked out and we're just like, I can't deal and or whatever. And yeah. you know, we're just sort of shut down or we're very rigid. Like, you know, like we are the person who's just like, I'm not talking to my seatmate. I am going to just do this train ride. And then how that, even though externally doesn't look like there's necessarily anything else going on, that is, it's kind of like what you say in your first book, um, that the break in the gas is on at the same time. Mm -hmm. and that you're just like tight, but you're not expressive. Yeah, I think when people prefer silence in the midst of a crowd, um, it's because their body expects stress and threat to come from social engagement. And the goal of having these superficial sort of like gentle social interactions is about like, look, you can engage socially in a way that isn't threatening. Have that experience of safety with small social engagement so that your body can begin to learn to have deeper social engagement with safety. Yeah, yeah, that's so key. And, you know, here on the Be Here Now Network, the other teachers are like Jack Cornfield, my mentor, and other folks. And, you know, he always sort of says at the end of the day, like, you know, what is it all about? Like, it's, it's about love. I mean, and that's, you know, and, and that whole thing of like human giver syndrome, it's all about, like, if you're looking at mindfulness practices and ancient wisdom practices, it's about generosity and, and compassion. Mm -hmm with the grounding of equanimity, which is wisdom and discernment, which means having the limits, which means that, you know, your husband can pull back when it's too much, that you can point out and that it's okay, and that we're in balance, right? Mm -hmm. So equanimity is sort of balance from this mindfulness perspective. But as we said, structurally, there are certain beings that get, you right. know, uh, more lauded or afforded certain opportunities and then the givers that are the doings and and that kind of thing mm -hmm. so that's how it lives in the body and those are some of the things that we can do that we can do that way how does it play out i would say in um in relationships we started talking a little bit about that and 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 sort of some of the other tiers in terms of the personal the um structural you know those other areas yeah so in relationships 
when you have two givers in a relationship together, that's sort of magic if both people are aware that both people are givers and they have a sense that it's good for both of us if neither of us get pushed over the edge. I can actually tell a story about my sister and me uh, in the process of writing burnout. <laughs> there was this one time when I was writing a TED talk <laughs> and it turns out writing a TED talk is really hard. Yeah. Uh, so for this one month, I was doing both. I was trying to work on the book and also work on the TED talk at the same time. And I was, I was, I was pretty stressed out. I was pretty exhausted. And uh, <laughs> Amelia was going to go with me to TED and uh, her travel arrangements were being complicated and it just was like too much for me. And I was like, well, maybe you should just go not come. Maybe it'd be easier if you just didn't go. <laughs> then my yeah. sister yeah. was like, so you're past your limit right now. And I was like, I'm not, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And you... she was like, no, you're past your limit. I'm going to take your dogs in my car right now. And you're going to leave. You are going to go to the beach and stare at the ocean and you'll figure out that I'm right and you're wrong. And it was one of those moments. She literally stole my dogs from my house and I had to be decide that she might see and feel something that I was too far gone to see and feel. And within an hour of arriving at the beach, I was texting her like, you were right. I was wrong. <laughs> I was being a jerk. I'm sorry. I was really stressed out. Thanks for your patience. Yeah. And that goes back to the rupture of repair, right? right. The, the attachment piece around like, you know, following John Bowlby, Mary Ainsworth, all these folks when it comes, they're talking about the people of early caregivers being able to do things good enough so that when there is a misattunement that we're able to circle back and say, hey, I didn't quite get that right. How are you doing now? And that we move forward from there and that that strengthens and deepens trust and growth within the relational field yes. and strengthens that sense of security and safety. So there are some of us who didn't have as much of that early on that may be a little bit more. Yeah, I know everybody can raise their hey, everybody uh, like and 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 that, that kind of sets us up for a little bit more of, well, what can I do now? How can I fix this? Because we're almost offering the thing that we wish that we would have received, that we quite didn't, that we are hoping that if we give out, we might get yeah. back until we realize we're not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Amelia and I we grew up in this very dysfunctional family of origin, where the rule was you don't talk about feelings, you don't talk about shared emotional experiences. Um, you lock down and you shut out and you just like get your shit done. We shared a bedroom and we did not talk about anything. Um, so for us to be able to do this with each other, it actually required writing the book. We were reading all this research and Amelia had like done all this, like she attended a multi-day workshop with uh, Jack Kornfield and Dan Siegel and like she was doing the whole thing and we were both reading uh, uh, Stephen Porges and I wrote extensively about attachment, like we know all about that science. And eventually it became inescapable that what the science was telling us the answer was, all this affective neuroscience and neuropsychology was telling us the answer is fucking love. <laughs> And connection and talking about your feelings and uh like we couldn't deny it like it was the science made it inescapable for us that we just had if we wanted to do what we were writing about in our book we had to like tell each other the stories from our childhood yeah. that we had never for 
35 years talked about ever. Uh, so it changed our relationship forever, writing the book. And the only reason we were in a place where Amelia didn't just like walk out on me when I was being so snotty was because we had like made this decision to commit to telling each other the truth about our feelings and being kind to each other no matter what. Beautiful. I love that because it's such an example. You're twins. So it's such an example of beautiful relationship that is so tight and close that isn't um, a romantic relationship, but is, yeah. uh, you know, as like sort of deep and, and, and as that can be. And there are two things that I hear you saying. One that, one that came up for me is what that a lot of people are afraid. They don't want to step into that space. So they've learned that it's supposed to be love, but they're kind of afraid. So there's that fear thing, right? And, uh, you know, whether it's the limbic hijack or constant freeze or dorsal vagal shutdown or any of those things. Yep. There's the other piece, which is sort of like, well, if I am ascribing to this, you know, rugged individualism, Western mythology around how we're supposed to be Americans or do this Western world, then I should be able to do this all by myself and I shouldn't need or want or care about others. So can you kind of unpack that a little? Exactly. That was the story we were sold and it is the story we bought for more than three decades of our lives. Uh, and the way we could make this whole love thing work for us and I say that with like I know that it really is the answer and like I hate it still like a big part of me is like I'm just a really strong introvert and I don't want to talk to people yeah. um and it's true that I'm a really strong introvert and I do best when I have small numbers of people at a time uh but what we realized is that connection follows the same pattern as rest and the same pattern as stress, which is to say it's a cycle. We are not designed to like get to a place of connection and stay forever in a place of deep connection with others. We are designed to go to a place of connection and then oscillate into a place of autonomy and separateness and then back into a place of connection and then back into a place of autonomy and separateness. So Amelia and I could find a way to feel safe in connection, knowing that we were not gonna stay in that place forever. We were not trapped. Which We're not still in the womb together. Right. Like, yeah. The, our birth story is all about how I was like, I'm getting the hell out of here. I was born before we got into the room. Like, my mother was in labor with me for maybe an hour. Not even. She sneezed, and I was out. Yeah. And the whole story is like, yeah, Emily couldn't wait to get out of there. And that was the story of our development, was Emily couldn't wait to get out of there. Uh, and then Amelia's story... Whew, feelings. Amelia's story, the umbilical cord was wrapped around her neck. And the story was that she refused to breathe for minutes. Um, so Amelia's story and the first memory of her body is that life is inherently dangerous and she's going to die. Her body goes to freeze really easily. And it was reading actually the polyvagal theory that I was like, oh, our birth story is about birth trauma. <laughs> And the reason you go to freeze so readily is because your very first experience of life, literally the moment you were born, was death. Wow. Oh. Yeah, and that's why they show up differently. And I know you have this emotion now, and I love it because if I were doing the somatic experiencing with you... <laughs> We'd like stay. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, and let that wave move through. Yeah. And just let those tears come and let that wave move through and know that it's okay and that we're safe, seen, and soothed. 
together, that in this relational field, however virtually, that we're still able to hold and process that and that, wow, we escaped, you escaped, you survived, and now you have this beautiful connection together. Yeah. It was so hard and difficult to like rebuild the connection after many decades of being told if you do that, you could potentially like actually die. Like that was the message in our family was that's how dangerous it was. But writing the book fixed it. Yeah, beautiful. Which, so we early on in talking to journalists about the book, um, in the connect, there's a whole chapter on connection, which was like, we hated that chapter. <laughs> but we, it's, it's all true. Um, uh, we have a thing we call the bubble of love, which are the relationships characterized by trust and this thing called connected knowing where we come to know ourselves better by knowing the other people. Uh, and we call that the bubble of love. And a journalist kept asking us, well, what if you don't have people like that in your life? And we sort of had this flip superficial answer of like, well, you need to find better people. And then we looked at our own experience and we're like, no. The answer isn't changing the people in your life, it's changing how you relate to the people in your life. And we are proof that if we can do it, anyone, anyone can do it. Right, and I love that because it takes two things, I think, and, and Sharon Salzberg, meditation teacher, talks about this, um, that it's not what happens, it's how you relate to what happens. And she also talks about um, that when we're, when we're, when we're stepping into that space, we have to kind of have faith. We have to be able to trust yep. the other person means what they say, that if they say, well, I'll try to be here for you, that they'll actually try. And that perhaps we've learned how to regulate ourselves a little bit and hold balance when they mess up, which is going to be inevitably what happens. Okay. We go back to what you were saying earlier, which is go back to the repair and there's some forgiveness piece in there and letting it go. And all of these other things that, that we're really sort of working on building this tapestry and weaving this tapestry, but orienting toward having the intention of that, as opposed to, I'm going to stay solo because it's where I feel safe. Only. Right. And yet we know that the loneliness and isolation is what also leads to all these negative health outcomes, yes. suicide, and especially suicide among men. Yeah. Because this structurally hurts men. All or the Right. Because like the whole like, you know, Lone Ranger isolated cowboy alone with a horse doesn't need anybody can do it all himself that's a patriarchal narrative that applies more to men than to women women are in fact expected to stop at a certain level of development and never become fully like independent or autonomous or have intellectual ambitions that require like being alone to think about stuff and are expected to stay in a place of constant perpetual relating. And Amelia and I were stuck in this sort of like, it's weak to need people because anything that's feminine is worse than things that are masculine. Uh, and so we like, didn't want to be like, I don't need people. Women are wimpy and need people like that. Um, turns out Barbara Streisand was right. <laughs> it's not just that people who need people are the luckiest people. It's that all people need people. The luckiest people are the people who can be with people and be safe. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And, and again, back to the secure and insecure attachment that some people have it. Some people, you know, yeah. kind of had non-birth trauma and had, you know, balance. Like half of people. Yeah. A lot of people. 
and, and, and it's great when we can find those people and, and have them be more part of our world and stuff. And oftentimes, you know, there's the other half, which is, you know, folks that like us need to work with this and kind of come to uh, learning a different way and trying to train ourselves in a different way. So we've been talking a little bit about um, how this affects our own physiology. And, and, and I'm wondering, as we go forward structurally, I mean, each one is sort of like your repair relationship with your sister would be what you know, my mentors would call planting seeds, right? That you're, you know, it's like the, the butterfly wings kind right. of the tsunami. So how does that play out? What's the incentive for, for folks? Where's the leverage? What's the... Yeah, for us, the incentive came from the undeniability of the research from so many different disciplines and domains. It just like every sign kept pointing toward connection is health, connection is happiness, connection is peace and balance and full humanity, that you are not fully yourself outside of relationships as a human being. We're a massively social species. Um, so the promise that we held in our hearts as we dared to like lower these walls that have been between us for our whole lives was if we do this terrifying, uncomfortable, unpleasant sometimes thing, the reward is we'll be happier and healthier Right. And uh, achieve our, a sense of complete humanity if we do this. And uh, we did. Yeah. <laughs> totally no, is better. It's, I, it's not easy. It's not comfortable still. It's been a couple of years now that we've had access to this deeper level of relating to each other. And it has not gotten to be like good. It has not like, yeah, this feels so nice. I like this. Like I can get that with my husband. That's like a different thing. Um, cause I don't have all the years of blockage to yeah. like overcome, but there is a profound satisfaction that comes with being able to not live by the rules we were raised by, uh, and instead do something that is a more complete representation of our humanity instead of just of our family. I love that. Okay. So here's the big question for the people who are the beings, meaning the takers, meaning the ones for whom the doers or the um, yeah. givers are. You feel entitled to take whatever it is a giver is willing to offer. Right. Um, is willing to offer is one key part of that. Um, so m noting that. Yeah. That. Um, but, though is complicated. Yeah. And that, but, and so where does the chicken or egg syndrome, right? Willing to offer is the one piece. The other piece is, I'm entitled, I see nothing wrong with this, it works for me, why do I need to change? I'm not going to change. So which comes first, the chicken or the egg? So what I love about this is that there is an answer to the which comes first, the chicken or the egg. And the answer is the egg. Because something that was not quite a chicken laid an egg, and from that egg came the first chicken. Because things change gradually and incrementally, right? So at some point there was a threshold crossing. So it was the egg that came first. In this case, it's uh, more complicated than that because, uh, so suppose you're a human giver and you begin to notice how your body feels when it's relating to a human being who feels entitled to take whatever it is they want from you. Um, and you notice like what it feels like to give with a person in that kind of relationship. And then you notice what it feels like to give with a person who is a fellow giver, who gives back and what does that exchange feel like and you begin choosing to allocate your time and energy and emotions and all your resources more away from these relationships you can't always choose to just like 
abdicate entirely from those connections. But sometimes you can be like, and I'm going to invest less over there and more over here. It makes it less sustainable to be a human being if there are no human givers whom you can suck dry and drain like a travel-sized tube of toothpaste. Um, but if you are a human being who has been raised to believe that you are entitled to whatever is offered to you and whatever you want from a person, recognize that in that dynamic, when you ask for something, you as a human being in both of your minds have a script that says, Person A, the human being, is entitled to whatever they want, and person B is morally obliged to give it, regardless of how they feel about it. So as person A, how do you feel about the possibility that person B is only saying yes to you out of a sense that if they don't, they're going to be punished? Is that the connection you're looking for? Or are you looking for something different in your relationships? Are you looking for someone who is an equal, who gives out of a free choice and a delight in the giving? Or do you just want what you want and it doesn't matter to you how the other person feels about it? Well, I think that last part is, does it matter? Do you care? Does do it care? matter to you about how the other person is doing and how they feel about it or not? And mm -hmm. if you don't, because you're just going to find another giver, then you're going to You're probably not watching this video. Uh. <laughs> right. Or maybe somebody's showing it to you because they want you to be changing, which is the different piece of it, right? So you can only want, like, you can only, in my experience, in my lived experience, I can have limits and do what you said, which is say, I'm no longer going to invest in this person. Asking or demanding someone change isn't effective because we can't change what other right. people do. We can change what we do. However, stating what our needs are clearly and succinctly and seeing whether or not the other person has the interest or the capacity or the willingness to keep on trying right. to come back and meet you there is something they can only do if you actually can identify and express what your limits and needs are there and how you would like them to help if they are so inclined to even give a shit yeah. and try. And so I think that is a very vulnerable and risky place yeah. for a lot of women. I know for me it has been, or anyone who is the human giver, um, because then, as you say, you risk rejection or perceived abandonment or that you did something wrong or that you are, as you said, a moral failure. Right. Yeah. To ask, to, to say, here's what I need from you is inherently to break the rules of being a human giver because you've just expressed a need and made the suggestion that the other person might have a responsibility to you to help you get those needs met, which is all by itself breaking the rules and means you could be punished. And so part of you might expect when you bring that to your partner that they're automatically going to just like reject it and you get to like bear the burden of your needs yourself, uh, which is not the ideal situation. But the reason it feels so scary is it is inherently already rule breaking just to say, here's what I need that is not currently being met. And if you can say that out loud, especially when you can make it clear, I love giving to you. It is a joy and a delight. And I have other needs that need to get met. When the other person can, like, is distressed to hear that you've been distressed to give these things, that's really promising and holds a lot of potential for that person to 
recognize the ways that they've been just assuming that your giving would be there and not even questioning that there might be discomfort that you could be enduring in order to make that giving happen. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Um, and that, that the other person recognizes that your distress is there, that you're uncomfortable and that that matters to them. Yeah. That they care enough about you and your well-being, And that as Terry Real says, one of my other mentors who does relational life therapy to live more relationally, to be in this case, which he often talks about in terms of cis hetero, you know, normative relationships, which is not, by any means what we're talking about for uh, the whole spectrum, but for the purposes of this quick piece, um, as an example, he would say, he would say, you know, bringing back, he does a grid where there's grandiosity and there's shame and there's walls and there's boundarylessness and that we want to move back into health. And that typically walled off and grandiose is the guy often. And down here in shame and boundarylessness is the woman. Yeah. And that's definitely the cultural script for sure. Right. And so we want to move back into this place of health. And his point is, his leverage is, well, what does it matter to you? Is it, is it the kids that matter to you? Is it the relationship? Is it the house? Whatever it is, the social thing. So where's the leverage there? And then how, like, is that your motivation to come back in addition to like opening up to caring about this partner that you once maybe loved or had a feeling for that maybe got lost or you got rigid about or something like that. And that having that come down is good for the one who is up here is actually good. So he says, you know, intimacy yes. is good for the, the, the beings, intimacy and vulnerability. It makes you feel like vulnerability means you could be wounded, right? Vulnerare means this is a wounding place. So it means you open yourself up to that possibility of being wounded when you live relationally and fully and you're part of this. Yeah dynamic. And yet, if you're able to do that with the rupture and repair and keep coming back, as you've shown with your sister, it's not always easy. As you do that, you can drop into a different kind of place of being and live more fully and yeah. enjoy and see more about what life and all the little finer points have to offer. Yeah. Yeah. It, though it's not easy. Uh, so in my own lived experience, even when it's not easy or fun, it's like exercise. Sometimes I really love the experience and there are other times when I'm just like, I just need to do this because I know it's good for me. And you get to the end of it and you're like, oh, that was, that was really, that was really good for me. I'm so glad I did that. Uh, sometimes it's like that, but also I just finished this super amazing book. It's not out yet. I got to pre-read it because uh, by Peggy Kleinplatz and A. Dana Menard called Magnificent Sex. What they did in their research was interview 75 people who self-identified as having extraordinary sex lives. Um, and they asked, how, how do you do it? What do you have to do to get to a place where you're having extraordinary sex? And thing number one was unlearning all of the cultural scripts, including especially those gendered scripts about vulnerability and connection and love and needs and performance of sexuality, and instead create for themselves genuine, authentic, deep connection. Intimacy shows up a lot in these extraordinary lovers who have magnificent sex. So if nothing else, if you can get to a place of like deep authenticity, you can experience ecstatic sexual pleasure with another human being in the room with you. Is that, is that a good, like, is that? That's, 
that's like, yeah, that's like, oh, yeah, like, no, that's motivation, right? Like, life-changing sex is available to you if you're willing to like wrestle with the thing you were born with, especially for just talking about men for a second. If you got raised with the gender script of being a man, you were taught that part of your, a big chunk of your value on earth can be measured by the uh, number of bodies you're allowed to put your penis into. Um, and that you shouldn't ever have any questions. You should already know everything there is to know about sex. You should be totally like confident and uh, all knowing. Um, and you should never have any like needs or feelings. It's just always be ready to put your penis into something. So to transition out of that script into a place of like deep eye contact with the lights on while your genitals are pressed together is really risky because again this is about your value on earth as a man you have to decide you know what my value is not measured that way that has nothing to do that's just somebody else's idea and it's getting it's like wearing a suit of armor between me and the person i'm trying to have sex with and i have to strip all that off and just be here in my flesh with this other person in their flesh it's a risk it's a huge risk. And also, I think the other piece that gets in the way of that is the checkbook, meaning how much I'm supposed to earn, how much power I'm supposed to yeah. have money. Because for structurally, especially for men in this culture, that's their measure of success, not right. relationality. Yeah, not a sense of like connection and love and like <laughs> peace in their soul. <laughs> and for women, a lot of it is beauty and conforming to the culturally constructed aspirational beauty ideal. Um, that they can't feel peace in their soul until their body is a certain shape or their skin is a certain texture or um, their, or as they age, they begin to diminish in their sense of peace in their body because their body is changing away from that cultural ideal. But uh, so the average age of first magnificent sexual experiences of these interviewees was 55. Wow. Yes. Because what happens is instead of abandoning all hope of ever conforming with the ideal, what they do is abandon the whole idea of a beauty ideal and decide that like, this is a body that I live in, my meat suit, and uh, it's capable of extraordinary pleasure. And I'm just going to go ahead and like access the pleasure that my body comes with as my birthright. And it doesn't matter if I don't conform to somebody else's idea of what's beautiful. A person I choose to put my body in a bed with knows that this is beautiful because here I am. Yeah, yeah. It's a totally different way of relating to people. Um, and the reward for engaging with people according to what you truly value instead of what your culture told you to value is... Uh, a kind of connection, love, pleasure, even ecstasy that is simply not available when you follow the rules. Yeah, I love that. And we're winding down two more okay. questions. One about shame and where that plays in. And the second one about how this applies to quote unquote marginalized groups, either racially or right. you know, that. Yeah. So uh, shame is super complicated. The main thing I want to make sure I say about it is uh, a lot of folks like me and you talk about self-compassion, which is an evidence-based practice. And if you're a person with a significant history of neglect, abuse, assault, other trauma, uh, when you practice self-compassion and try to be kinder and gentler with yourself, uh, 
what the brain research shows is that you're more likely to experience a stress response as if that self-compassion is a threat. Why? Because relating itself is a threat. It is much easier. So if that's you, if you've tried self-compassion and you're like, fuck this noise. Uh, Poor dog. Try metta, try loving kindness, which begins with compassion for others, which even a traumatized brain can experience with peace. And gently practice compassion for others as a route into eventually maybe practicing compassion with yourself. And I'll just demark that that would be the simple practice of may you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you live with joy and ease, may all beings be safe, may all beings be happy, may all beings be healthy, may all beings live with joy and with ease, and then eventually perhaps can work your way back. May I, yes. May I be safe, may I be happy, may I be healthy may I live with joy and ease. And that is, you know, Sharon Salzberg's practice for all those who are interested in that. So go on. Yeah. So that's my thing about shame is the antidote is self-compassion. Self-compassion is really hard for people in that level of shame. So do compassion for others. Um, And the, what was the other piece? Well, the other part was the um, marginalized. Oh, marginalized identities. Right. So this is really, really important for me because people uh, whose identities are marginalized to experience oppression on a daily basis, what that means is their body is under stress literally every second of every day. They're out walking, breathing toxic air in a toxic environment all the time. Their body's saturated in the toxins of hate and marginalization. Um, And so they need this bubble of love more than anybody else, a place to go where their bodies are safe, where their identity is valued in and of itself so that they can process all of those emotions in a safe place, hopefully in some of it, at least in connection with other people who are fully appreciating who that person is. Those bubbles of love are super duper important because like, we're not going to live to see the end of the patriarchy. We're not going to live to see the end of white supremacy. We will live to see it get better. We will live to see change, but we're not like a person of color is not going to walk out in the world in the next 10 years and not be living in white supremacy. That's, and what I long for is a world where any person of color who wants to take a nap gets an honor guard to escort them to like a nap room and people are vigilant in protecting that space so that person can share rest and joy and peace in their bodies. And like one of the main tasks of white people is to protect that space and that state of mind for people of color to just like begin compensating for the, you know, generations of labor stolen from black bodies in America. Starting place for reparations, rest and joy. Yeah. We celebrate that as the foundation of all of our freedom. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Rest is resistance or, you know, ask. You can't spell resist without rest. Yeah, exactly. I love that. And let me shout out uh, uh, the Nat Ministry. Uh, Patricia Hersey is uh, the Nat Bishop, and she runs something she calls the Nat Ministry, which is all about collective napping for people of color, especially black people in America, as both a response to narratives around rest and people of color and a reaction against it. It's action, creating these spaces of love and rest. I love that. And um, yeah, and, and, and how that part of rest is, is really foundational to reconciliation um, within ourselves and, and, all, and, all, and all beings and all communities. Uh, Emily, where can people find you? And the book is Burnout. 
Yeah. Uh, so I'm on Instagram at E Nagoski. My sister runs the Instagram uh, burnout book group where she posts pictures of the songs she makes up while we're traveling. Uh, cause she is, she's a professional musician. <laughs> so that's, she like sings all the time. Uh, and, uh, burnoutbook.net is the website for the book and emilynagoski.com is me. Beautiful. I love all that. And you're on the road. People can maybe check out your website. Yep, there's a calendar and a map of all the places we're going. <laughs> I love it. And all the places that you're taking us along the way. Emily Nagoski, uh, Dr. Emily Nagoski. I know because really that's also yeah. not you know, there, there you go. <laughs> we're all colonized at a certain level. So you deserve your props too, because you put in the time and did the work. So thank you so much. I appreciate your time here on Rerooted and um, may all beings be safe and happy and healthy and live with joy and ease, including you. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Take it easy.